You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Certainly you've heard the phrase, maybe you've used it before, and, and while it may be a recent one, the idea is quite old. In fact, the Israelites, as we've seen throughout this entire book of Judges, they knew that idea. They knew that concept. You do you all too well. And this morning, as we look at the last God-appointed judge in, in, in this book, uh, we see this phrase on full display. So we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 13 this morning. You do you. Chapter 13, verse 1 starts like this. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This is the seventh time that we've seen this very phrase in the book of the Judges that Israel has done again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They do exactly what they want to do. They worship who they want to worship. They live however they want to live. They have married whoever they have wanted to marry. They buy whatever they want to buy. They use their time however they want to use their time. And so in doing whatever they want to do, the scripture tells us that it was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gives them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. The longest stint, if you remember, that the Israelites have suffered under any oppression. The Philistines are tough too. These are the people that have created some of the first iron materials. They're using iron for weapons. They come up with strategic battle formations. They, they know what they're doing. They're, they're the first to construct buildings. They're, they're building bridges. The Philistines are an extremely powerful people, and we know a very important warrior comes from them. Anybody know who it is? Goliath. Goliath himself comes from these people. So verse 2 there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, which is significant for us because in Genesis chapter 49, there is a prophecy that Dan, the tribe of Dan, is going to judge his people. And we'll find out this morning that Samson is going to be the fulfillment of that prophecy from Genesis chapter 49. So there was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his nameless wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord, who we've seen before in the scriptures, we saw that clearly in the life of Gideon under the terebinth tree. It's a divine appearance, a theophany or a Christophany, if you will. He, he appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, there's several points of interest here, just general observations first. And it may seem rather obvious, but God knows the angel of the Lord knows that Manoah's wife, although she's nameless in this story, is barren. It's, it's important to the storyline and may also be important to you, whether you're here gathering with us physically this morning or you're watching with us online. There are women all throughout the pages of Scripture who in their barrenness are greatly used by God. And so, sister whether you are begging to God that he would find you a suitable partner, whether you long to be married and have a child, or whether you are married and are waiting, know that God knows that. He knows. 
Second, that this child that is promised to Manoah's wife is to be set apart for the Lord's purposes even before birth. Now, according to the Nazarite vow, which you could see more clearly spelled out in Numbers chapter 6, a vow that even John the Baptist had taken, anyone can be set apart, not just the Levites who were set apart for God's priestly purposes. Anyone could be set apart for the Lord and following this strict standard. You are not to cut your hair. You are not to imbibe any alcohol and have no contact with the dead. Third, incredibly significant to our understanding of the text this morning, we've already seen the people do what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they are oppressed this time for how many years? 40. Now what's supposed to happen next in the judges cycle at this point? Anybody remember? What happens next? The people are supposed to do what? Cry out. The people are supposed to cry out, but they don't this time. We don't, we don't see any mention of them crying out in the longest stint of oppression that is recorded under the hand of the mighty Philistines. No, it seems that the Israelites, instead of crying out, have actually grown accustomed to the pain and suffering that they've been put under. They've grown used to their oppression. They've come to like the idol, idols that they've been placed under. And so instead of crying out to God, they just continue on. But despite their you-do-you mentality, God says, I'm for you. And he begins to raise up one who will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this woman that we still don't have a name for tells her husband about the visit from the angel of the Lord and Manoah asks that the angel would return. He needs some more information. He does. And in verse 12, Manoah asks, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? Now, we don't know what is going on in Manoah's heart and mind. We don't have a lot of information here, but he seems to show some sort of faith in acknowledging that whatever the angel of the Lord says is going to come to pass. Verse 13, and the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Now, Manoah doesn't really get an answer that he's looking for from the angel of the Lord, does he? Just be sure that Samson observes the Nazarite vow and even that you take care to observe it during her pregnancy. Now, consider with me for just a moment. Could it be that the answer is withheld from Manoah and his wife because of the mercy of the Lord? Can you imagine, and we'll get into uh, this young man's life in just a moment, but can you imagine if at that time the angel of the Lord began to list out to his parents what exactly their son Samson's life was going to look like? They would have been terrified, wouldn't they have? They would have been ashamed. They couldn't have bore it. Family, perhaps that might be why we don't always get the answers that we're looking for. Why you've done this, perhaps it would be too much for us to bear. All we need to know is that God has revealed himself to us like he's revealed himself to Manoah and his wife. He's spoken in his word, and that is enough, family. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Verse 17, and Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? seeing it is wonderful. The angel says, I, I can't tell you my name. You couldn't handle my name, verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. Can you imagine this sight? 
This is what happens when you encounter the holy God. It's consuming. And so here's the picture that we have. Two people in all of Israel that have faith in the living God. When they encounter him, what do they do? They don't stand there talking to him. They fall on their faces in a worship, in a time when all of their family and all of their friends are worshiping Baal. They are on the ground worshiping the Lord. This can't be underemphasized. Is the worship of God awesome to you? Is it awesome to you? Are you regularly confronted with God's incredible glory as Manoah and his wife were? What about when you pray, Christian? Does it, does it overwhelm you that you have the opportunity because of Christ and his righteousness that you can commune with a holy God in prayer? And if not, could it be that you're more concerned with yourself than the Lord? Verse 21. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And so she must have been right. The woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And don't miss this. His name means son, S-U-N. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him, uh, Mahanedan, between Zorah and Eshtael. Chapter 14, we now begin to see Samson, the deliverer who God has raised up, begin saving his people from the Philistines, who's been set apart for his good purposes, and he's begun to live his life. Verse 1, it doesn't seem to begin the way that we would have thought. Verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, Hey, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a, a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? You see, the man who is set apart for God is supposed to see what God wants for him to do, how God wants him to live. But Samson has the you do you and I'll do me mentality. Mom, dad, I saw this woman she looks really good to me, and I want her as my wife, so go get her as my wife. And his parents, knowing more about his purpose in life, what God has given him to, tries to challenge him. Now, why do you want to go through with one of those women who are not a part of God's covenant people? You're, you're supposed to save us from the Philistines. Now you want to marry one? They worship another god. The text says they're uncircumcised. Now, we've seen this before already in this book, but the issue here is not a racial one. It's not that they just inherently dislike the Philistines because of their skin tone or anything like that. The issue is one of worship. And so if I may for just a second, the idea of being unequally yoked is clearly seen Beginning in Exodus 34, we see it clearly in the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that Christians are not to marry unbelievers. That an unequally yoked relationship will weaken a believer's loyalty to God. That it is inevitable that the faith of a believer in the household will be pushed to the margins. Why? Because God will not be worshipped as supreme in that household. And so God says, do not intermarry. My name is to be supreme, and my name is to be supreme among you. And yet, this man who has been supposedly set apart for the Lord and his purposes says, no. This woman looks good to me, and so I am going to have that woman. And Mr. and Mrs. Manoah are saying, we've dedicated our whole life. Yours included the being set apart from the Lord. Don't do this. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. What does the text say? For she is right in my eyes. Where have we heard this? 
Israel's spirit, spiritual state is now seen in their leader. Samson trusted his own eyes more than he trusted the word of God. Samson is going to be now just At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, what a crucial verse we see here that God is using and orchestrating events in Samson's life for his own purposes. It's not that God wants Samson to go about it in this particular way, but it is that Samson is doing it this way. He is doing whatever he sees right in his own eyes, and so God in his sovereignty is using it to work his own purposes for his glory, verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, apparently we don't have this in the text, but the parents duck out. They're, they're missing here in just a second, and Samson is alone. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Let's think about this. Now, what are you not supposed to touch under a Nazarite vow? Anything that is dead. And yet... The spirit of the Lord, the text is clear, enabled him to tear this lion to pieces. Why is God doing that? I think what we have here is a moment of mercy from the living God. Why, you say? Because Samson should have torn the lion into two as the spirit of God enabled him to and thought to himself because of the Nazarite vow that he had been taken, that he had participated in all before birth and said, I repent, God. I'm unclean. Look what I've done. Look what I've touched. I must now go to the priest. I must now make an offering before the Lord. I must cut my hair. I need to start all over again. I should have been living differently in submission to the Lord. My life has veered all the way to the wrong trajectory. My parents are godly, and they've been pointing me to you and your purposes all this time, but I've rejected their wisdom and their direction. But does Samson do that? No. Samson ignores the moments of mercy before, and he ignores the moments of mercy of God here yet again. And he now covers for his sin. We see in verses 7 through 9, when he goes to take his wife, he sees yet again the lion's carcass. And this time, there are a whole bunch of bees in the lion's carcass, and there is a good hunk of honey. And so in his pride, he takes of that honey yet again, touching that which is unclean, and he begins to eat of it. He takes this honey as a trophy of what he has done, thinking, my, how powerful am I? Now he has not only no concern for his sin, but he also has no concern for the uncleanness of others as well. His sin is getting the best of him. He grows conceited. He's proud. And now for this drinking feast of the Philistines, he seems to have 30 men around him. And he wants to play a game. He's already gotten away with this sin. Nothing has happened to him. God hasn't struck him dead. And so he just wants to play a game of riddles. If they can guess his riddle, he'll buy them all suits. But if they can't, then they'll have to give him 30 suits. And they wanted to play his game. And so he gives them this riddle in verse 14. Look there with me. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now you guys go figure this out. Now think about this. This thing, this moment in Samson's life was to be a mercy of the Lord, the dead lion. It was supposed to stop stop him dead in his tracks. Repent, turn from your ways, turn towards the living God. But now it's become the brunt of his jokes. And he just wants to make a game out of it. He takes a matter of sin in his life and he begins to laugh at it. He thinks he's the Riddler. 
He thinks he has jokes before the Philistines, but hear this, God will not be mocked. You may think today that you're getting away with some sin in your life, and you may be for this moment because it's hidden from others. Your spouse doesn't know about it. Others in your life don't know about it. Members of your church don't know about it. You may think that you're getting away with that sin right now, but you will not get away with it on the last day. And so if God has shown you any amount of mercy, would you take that today? If you realize your sin against him and repent while it is still today, hear that. Now, in verses 15 through 17, they hadn't figured out the riddle yet, and so they go to his new wife, and they're asking, would you please help us do this? And if you don't, they they raise the stakes pretty high. We're going to burn you and burn your father's house, so tell us. And so she pressed her new husband very hard, and she got it out of Samson, and she told them, And so he replies to the 30 Philistines in verse 18, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Translation, you used my wife to get to me and you shouldn't have. You don't know what you're doing. Here's why, verse 19. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. So he's like, okay, I'm going to pay up, but I'm going to make somebody else pay in giving you these suits. I'm going to bring somebody else's suits your way. In hot anger, the text, sin is now completely controlling him, it seems. But don't miss this. God's plan of taking the Philistines out is unfolding all according to plan. Chapter 15, verse 1. After some days, the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to his wife with a young goat. Um, we don't understand that, but it's like a dozen roses, okay? And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, "Um, I really thought you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she anyways? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And so we see his anger unbridled. Verse four, so Samson went and caught 300 foxes, also translated as jackals. Jackals may have been easier to catch, but this is Samson, so it doesn't really matter. He's a really strong individual. Somehow he catches 300 foxes and he took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, You get the picture here, right? He let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain in the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Now, there's some pretty important information tucked away in these five verses. First, question. How did the Philistines have this land anyways? Whose land was it? Israel's land. The Philistines have taken this land from Israel. And during the wheat harvest, the Israelites are to be doing what with their grain? Grain offerings. Now get this. While Samson is just angry, he is so angry that he has done this really weird thing and found all these foxes and lit all their tails on fire so that they've burned up all the grain in sight and they begin to just blow up what the Philistines have. He's gone full mad in turning, burning foxes loose in this land and setting all of the grain on fire. You see this picture? The Lord is still getting his grain offering. The Lord will be worshiped. He will get what is due him. Even if you aren't a knowing or willing participant, this is who the living God is. He's going to get the praise that is due his name, whether you are willing or not. 
even if you aren't a knowing or willing participant. In Luke chapter 19, as Jesus is being ushered into the city of Jerusalem in his last week, just days before his crucifixion, the crowds are shouting that familial phrase, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, to which some Pharisees didn't like it all. Hang on. What are you saying? This is blasphemous. And he tells Jesus, you need to be rebuking your disciples for saying such a thing. And Jesus responds with this, I tell you, if these people, if these disciples were to be silent, the very stones would cry out. God will get his glory because he is worthy of his glory. And one more thing. The Philistines worshipped the god of grain. That was their biggest idol. That is what they had given every bit of their worship to and hear God. Through the actions, the sinful actions of this man, he lights the whole thing up. I'll show my power despite who wants to be involved. I'm going to get my glory Samson thought he was getting his. He thought that he was lifting his own name up. I'm going to get the honor and everybody is going to look at me, but he would be wrong. Now, Samson's own sin takes a tragic turn. Verse 6. Then the Philistines said, who's done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timonite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. They still get it. Now Samson is enraged. He strikes them and he heads out. The Philistines come then to Samson's people, the Israelites in Judah, asking for Samson. And to save themselves from being attacked, they literally bind their deliverer, Samson, and they hand him over to the Philistines. Israel would rather hand over their rescuer, the one that God had raised up to deliver them, to deliver them so that they could live at peace with the world. They would rather be slaves of these people, slaves to idols, pagan gods, than be free to worship. They would rather forsake Yahweh than to be unfaithful to the Philistines. The Israelites' oppression and slavery was comfortable to them. And Samson was disturbing their peace, so they hand him over willingly. Oh, and in verse 14, when the Philistines are being handed over Samson, they're shouting, they're giddy, we finally got him. And right then, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson again. He busts out of the rope and he kills a thousand Philistines right then and there. And instead, this is what Samson always does, instead of turning right then and there, another mercy of God moment, instead of praising the Lord for what he's done, how he's delivered even Samson from the bounds of death, he writes a song about himself. He says, look at me, look what I've done. No mention of God, verse 16, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. Samson, hurrah, look at me, look what I've done. Heap can be translated as donkey as well in Hebrew. So Samson says, with a donkey, I turned these men into donkeys. He says, come at me, bro. I will take you down so fast. Nothing can stop me. Me, me, me. Look what I've done. And then in verse 18, Samson does something we haven't seen him do before. He prays. And he was very thirsty and he called out upon the Lord and said, you've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? God, haven't you seen what I've just done? Could you provide me just a little bit of water to drink? Samson has seemingly little realization, if any at all, that the Spirit of God has allowed him to perform these feats, and yet he shows, God does, continued mercy, verse 19. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he, revi he revived. Therefore, the name of it was In Hakor, the spring of the caller. 
It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. Chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and the text says he went into her. Samson is getting more brazen with his sin. He's not caring about anything that God has said for him. He's disobedient, he's foolish, but he doesn't even seem to care. Verse 2, the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and he put them on his shoulder and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now, there's not much to say about that other than that is just wild. Samson is strong physically, but we know as the readers that he is incredibly weak. Verse 4, after this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was... Delilah. Remember, Samson's name means what? Son. Delilah's name means, anybody know? Darkness. Her name means extinguisher. She is the sun's extinguisher because the light of Samson is about to be put out with this woman. Now in verses 5 through 15, Delilah is bribed by the Philistines to seduce Samson so that they can bind him up. So she devises a plan. And she tries to figure out exactly where his strength lies. If we could just figure that out, then I can bind him and the Philistines can have Adam. And so he tells her several things as to what his strength is actually found in, and none of them work. And so the reader begins to wonder, does Samson know what she's trying to do? Is that why he's playing her game? Is that why he hasn't yet told her exactly what it is? Surely he does. But isn't that what sin does to us, family? Even though we may often be aware of the trap that sin is, we tell ourselves, even in it, we're fine, I'm fine. I can dabble in this sin just a little longer. It won't hurt me. It won't consume me. It won't take every ounce of me, but that is a lie. Sin always wants us to think that we'll be able to get out of it if we would just stay in a little longer. You get pleasure, and you can still get out of it. It's a win-win. That's what sin always tells us. But in verse 16, we see things begin to change. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, I don't think that Samson actually thought that that was going to happen. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. You see, he thought that he could tarry just a little longer in the sin, that he could just stay there a little longer because there's always that moment when you can still break free. I'm in perfect control here. And so he said the thing in which he thought maybe his power was bound up in, he said, let's even test this because surely this won't hurt me either. I'm a strong man. I can do anything. Those are tragic words at the end of verse 20. He didn't even know that the Lord had left him. You see, Samson was so confident that he couldn't lose his strength, even if his hair was cut, that he falls asleep on this prostitute's knee. Because Samson was unable to see how dependent he actually was on the grace of God. Do you actually know how dependent you are in this moment on the grace of God? 
that if it wasn't for his grace, it wasn't for his grace, we would have never known the mercy of God that we could be in right relationship with a holy God. Samson doesn't know how dependent he was on God's grace. He came to see strength as his unalienable right. This is mine. This is what I've done. Look at me, not because of the mercy of a generous God, he thought. Verse 21, and the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. You see how low Samson has been brought. Now, Samson had certainly had his wrong ideas about God, but verse 22 tells us that the Philistines did as well because the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. They too had a very low view of the living God. Verse 23, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. One who was this picture of tremendous strength is now being used to play games with. We couldn't have seen this coming. In all of his strength, Samson is now a jester in a king's court that is not his own. Verse 26, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests. He's feeling, remember, because his eyes are gouged out, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Verse 28, then Samson, which is the second time we see him praying, called to, called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now Samson does something that we didn't even see in the first prayer. Samson, who used to be strong, is now weak. And Samson realizes that, and he prays that God would give him strength. He realizes that he is weak, so he prays that God would make him strong. Verse 29, and Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left on the other, and Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. Until now, every moment in his life had been serving his own body, but now he sacrifices it. The prophecy of Dan that we saw at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 39, 49, has now been fulfilled. The angel of the Lord spoke what was true to Manoah's wife. His death achieved the role that God had for him to begin to save the Israelites from the Philistines. Three points of application as we conclude our time looking at the last God-appointed judge. And the first is this. We are our own worst enemy. Notice the problem here in all of Samson's life is not God. Notice the problem in our life is not God. We often sabotage the plan that God has for us in our own lives. Here's Samson's life. He was several things that I'll list out first is impulsive. Perhaps you can identify with some of these things. He was impulsive. He takes food that's not his own. He takes women that are not his own. Anything he wants, he gets it. He takes it. He's filled with rage at the drop of a hat. His own game made him mad because he lost 
his game. He's not filled with righteous anger at all. He's just mad because his glory has been robbed. And so, child of God, out of love for God, ask yourself, do I have control by the Spirit of God over my sinful impulses? When you make decisions, whose desires are you pleasing, yours or God's? As we look at Samson's life, we wonder, why would anyone risk their lives and the lives, lives of others for a taste of honey? And yet we know exactly what that's like. To throw away what God is doing in our lives for sin. To give our families away so that we could enjoy just for a moment some pornography or alcohol so that we could enjoy our cars or our homes or comfort. Second, in Samson, we also see a life of compromise, that he often treated the commands of God with much casual, often breaking them. Here's the trajectory of sin. It always seems to start fun, but it never ends that way. He had given himself to alcoholic parties with the Philistines, to prostitutes, to Delilah, and had a little bit, but what bad could it bring? Just a little bit of images on the computer, it couldn't hurt anyone else. If I just cheat on my taxes in a small way, no one else will know. If I just lie to my boss with these little lies, if I just lie to my wife with these little lies, no one will know. But as we saw in Samson's life, what seems to be little begins to be huge, magnifies in his life, and it affects everyone around him. So what if real consideration wasn't the effect of the action of our sin, but the disgrace that we were bringing to a holy God? That this grieves the spirit of God if I engage in this sinful activity. What if that was... What we saw, third, in Samson, we see someone who is unteachable. And so we ask this morning of ourselves, how do we respond to criticism? What areas in my life are off limits to everyone, my family included? Fourth, we see that Samson was a loner. The only time that Samson was with people was when he determined to use them for his own personal gain or glory. The people of God, though, are different, aren't we? We're people who've been called into a family. We've been adopted into a family. We've been given a new father. We live in community. Our people in your life, have you allowed them to be close enough to speak into your life to any degree? Are you connected to the life of other Christians? Are you in DNA? Are, are you in some sort of discipleship relationship with other members of Christ's body? And are you working at being made known? Don't use the excuse that no one else in my Christian circles are being transparent about their sin so I don't have to be transparent about mine. No, no one else has ever confessed this sin, so I'm not going to confess that sin. No one else has been walking in the light in that area, so why would I walk in the light in that area? Whatever part of your life is kept in secret will absolutely grow and fester in the darkness. God has not set up the Christian life to be sufficient under preaching the Sunday event alone. We need community. That is what God has intended for his family. Fifth, Samson was proud. He assumed he'd never lose his strength, and so he never gave God the appropriate glory. After Judges, we're going to move into a, a spiritual gift series, and we'll elaborate more on this then. But know that it is possible to have the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. Samson used God's blessing for his own purposes. He decided not to give God the glory that was due his name. We are our own worst enemy. Second, quickly, the world needed somebody greater than Samson. We think, okay, so who is going to finish this book? How is this story going to get better for Israel? 
Who's going to be the last judge who is going to be better than Samson? Samson is the last judge. But don't let that bring you to despair. Instead, knowing that allows us to read the Bible in its correct context. We don't look to Samson to be the final deliverer of God's people. We look to one who is coming, the one we see in the New Testament, in redemptive history, has come, and that is King Jesus. That is how we read the book of Judges. That's how we read our Bibles. Christ Jesus is the promised one. He's the one that is going to come to deliver his people from sin. He's the one who's going to set the captive free. He is the one who is going to make all things right. And that's good news. The world needed somebody greater than Samson. And finally, it is never too late to cry out to God. And so the, the question that we have is, will Samson be in heaven? Will he? Only the Lord knows who are his. But listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. The author says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. That's not Samson, is it? Enforced justice. Doesn't seem like Samson. Obtained promises. Nothing particular about Samson. Stop the mouths of lions. Who's that? Daniel. Quench the power of fire. Who's that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escape the edge of the sword. That's not Samson. We're made strong out of weakness. That's Samson. God uses such flawed people as Samson to get his work done. We can't put God in a box and limit him to respond to our good work and godly choice. Faith, do you think that, that God is done writing your story here on this earth? No way. God's children are always brought to a place of weakness because no one walks into heaven thinking that they've got there on their own. No one walks into heaven thinking, my, what a good job I've done. No one walks into heaven having written their own song. No one walks into heaven thinking, look what I've accomplished in my life. No. We find ourselves in the grips of the Father because of his kindness, his mercy towards sinful people. And so we see in the life of Samson, a man who was strong that became very weak. And isn't that the life of every Christian? That we, at one time in our life, we're walking in rebellion towards a holy God, thinking that we could do this our own way. Thinking that we could prove something to a holy God, that if we were just given enough time, enough opportunities, that we could prove ourselves before this Father, the living God. But God says, no, no man can come before me because of his sin. No man is good enough to be in my kingdom, and so that is why Jesus Christ, his one and only son, came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all the law. He fulfilled all righteousness, and he died the death on the cross that you and I as sinners deserved to die. He bore God's wrath completely and fully that if we would trust in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins, we could be confident about our place in in the heavens, we could be confident about our place with Father God. A strong people who've been made weak, but a weak people who give all the glory to God the Father. That's one of the reasons we take communion every single week at South Point. I said this last week, but this is a meal communion is for very weak people. 
And so if you are a member of the family of God, if you have trusted Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, we invite you to participate in this meal with us. And if on your way in you didn't get any of those elements but you want to participate with us, would you just lift your hand and the usher will bring those your way. They can bring those elements to you. But again, we take this meal because we recognize that we are weak people. It's for those who have come to the end of ourselves. Here's a meal for people who know that they, if, if we are to be saved, it is because of the righteousness of another. Not anything that we've done, not because of any strength that we've had, not because of any good deed that we have done in this life, but because God is good. He's merciful. He's shown us He's given us his righteousness in his son. And so as we pull that top layer off and we eat of the bread, would we remember the body of Christ broken for you? You may eat. And as we drink of this juice, we as God's people who are not loners in this family, who are willing to be open and honest about the sin that plagues us, the sin that weighs us down, are encouraged to look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, and we remember together the blood of Christ poured out for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that in your kindness, you have sought us out. A rebellious people. A people who had no desire to do things your way. A people who were running completely in an opposite direction for our own glory, for our own good, doing the things that we wanted to do, just like the Israelites as we've seen today. They wanted to marry who they wanted to marry. They wanted to worship who they wanted to worship. They wanted to do what they wanted to do because it looked right in their own eyes. But Father, we praise you as your people this morning because you pulled us out of that. You ransomed us by your son, Christ Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross. And in his death, he didn't stay there. He was resurrected on the third day, proving that he had indeed conquered the enemy of sin and death in which we could not conquer. And so as your people to today, together, we ask that your spirit will continue pushing us, enabling us, empowering us to walk in righteousness, that we would be quick to point to your glory and Father, we thank you for the good news that even when we don't, you'll still receive it. For even if we don't give you the praise that is due your name, you can even use the rocks to cry out on our behalf. You're worthy of it. Help us to see that, Father. Help us to live lives that would say that, that would explain that, that would magnify that. And we give you all the honor and the glory. It's in your son, Christ Jesus' name.